0: here in Ezekiel chapter 43, because I wanted a little bit of extra time. We're we're not going to go as far as we wanted to, but that's okay, because I think this is really important for us to establish the understanding of God's restoration of the land and the people of Israel. It is something that if the world took notice of sincerely, there would be peace. But God already knew that there wouldn't be this kind of peace. And as we said, uh, there hasn't been peace for 4,000 years. And that's because man is the one who tries to define what peace is. God has defined peace for us. Simply by identifying his son as the Messiah the Prince of Peace there's no other peace until Jesus comes if we knew that we would approach nations and things a whole lot differently so we have to continue to pray for our nation. We enter into this section here in Ezekiel 43, if you'll turn there now. And we kind of looked at this passage, but we didn't look at it in the depth that we needed to. So I'd like to begin by reading at verse, beginning at verse 4, where it says, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. In other words, the gate that faces east. This is the direction that the glory of the Lord came from. So the Spirit that took me up and brought me into the inner court. I should say, so the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And I heard him speaking unto me out out of the house. And the man stood by me. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever in my holy name, shall the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredom nor by the carcasses of their kings in their high places." And so, a very significant event is taking place here in the life of the prophet Ezekiel as he is given a vision of what is to take place in the millennial kingdom of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. The magnificent radiance of God's glory is seen once again by the prophet, causing him to fall upon his face, much like the apostle John would as he recorded in Revelation chapter 1, once again showing some important similarities between Ezekiel and John and their prophetic works. Whereas we read in Revelation 1, verses 12 through 20, where it says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And remember now, Ezekiel heard a voice. And he saw, and John hears a voice. And it says, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, the menorah of the temple. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. By the way, Peter doesn't have the keys. (laughs) Jesus has the keys. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The things that have happened, the things that are happening, and the things that will happen. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So we see this similarity between Ezekiel and seeing the visions that God gives him of the temple and now of the glory of God. Because remember from the very beginning of the book of Ezekiel, the theme was the glory of God. The glory that was there among the midst of the people, the glory that departed because of the people's disobedience and their rebellion against God, and the glory that would return, as we see in this particular chapter. So I mentioned last time that the glory of God is actually Jesus himself who will enter the house or the temple from the east into the city of Jerusalem upon the new temple mount, which would be created by his return due to the changed topography at his coming. From the Mount of Olives where his feet will land right into the very city of Jerusalem, But now everything's changed. If we ourselves will be changed in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye, couldn't Jesus change all of the things that most people would be familiar with in in Jerusalem in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye? Of course he can. If he couldn't, then he's not God. So now this leads to another significant occurrence. The spirit of the Lord took Ezekiel into the inner court of the temple to witness the most climactic moments of human history. A moment that, by the way, is still in the future, but it's going to be part of human history one day. And that is, Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord return to the nation of Israel and fill the temple. Fill the temple. The whole temple, it says, was full of the glory of God. There's no temple in Jerusalem today, but there will be. That's the promise. And the temple, once it is built in the city of Jerusalem, according to God's design. Not whatever temple is going to be there during the tribulation period. The temple after the tribulation period. That's the one that we're talking about here. That's the one that will be filled with the glory of God. Why do we know that that's the one and not the the one during the tribulation? Because during the tribulation period, halfway through the tribulation period, the Antichrist himself is going to set up himself as God. Three and a half years into the seven year peace treaty. So Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord return. Which is telling us one thing. The glory of the Lord isn't there yet. But it's coming. The promise is sure. What has the Lord given up to that point? He's put the nation back in the the land. And he is raising up his people who love and know Messiah to be the witnesses, to where eventually, by the beginning of the tribulation period, there will be 144,000 witnesses you can read about in Revelation chapter 7. But Isaiah had a very similar experience and vision that we need to kind of compare here. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6, if you will, and look at verses 1 through 8. I want you to listen to the language of Isaiah, who is given this as a vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So that's enough to say that this God can be seen. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. By the way, the train that it speaks of is the you know the, the the robe or the robe of majesty but this is the train of the glory of god that fills the temple and above it stood the seraphim each one had six wings with with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he did fly and one cried unto another and said Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That gives us an indication now of the vision of, of, of the time frame that He's seen. The whole earth would be full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said, I, as any prophet would have said... Woe is me, for I am undone. And that word undone in the Hebrew literally means that he was disintegrated into millions of pieces. That's what it means to be undone. Disintegrated. Uh, you know the word integrate means to put together? <laughs> this means he was unput together. Every molecule he felt, you know, and we're talking figuratively here, of course. This is how he felt. I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of Hosts. Can any of us be able to see the glory of the Lord? Just ask Moses. God had a special way for Moses to see his glory, but it it was only the backside of his glory. And even if it was a little glimpse of it, it changed Moses. And Isaiah said, my, 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 my lips are unclean I, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips and, and my eyes have seen the king. I mean, I'm undone. And then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having lie, a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged also. I heard the voice of the Lord. There's the voice of the Lord, just as Ezekiel and John heard, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. And the Lord heals us from our sin that we might serve him. As Ezekiel and, and all the other prophets and Isaiah were touched to be able to do what they're doing as prophets, Well, Ezekiel hears someone speak to him. And we're told in verse 6 of Ezekiel 43 that a man stood by him. Well, that's significant. Because he can see a man. And it is obvious then that this is the Lord Jesus. Simply by what he tells Ezekiel. Listen to what he says. Son of man, this is the place of my throne. Literally what he says is, behold the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. Behold it. Look at it. It is important to note that when the glory returns, it will not be a question of whether the people themselves are deserving of a blessing. But it will be a divine display of God's grace as expressed in the new covenant. And by the way, the new covenant that is expressed in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. First of all, let's review some of these prophecies concerning the restoration of Israel and of Judah. This is highly important for us to understand. Uh, and, And especially after the things that we saw and heard today on the news about President Trump and his recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. This is very significant. People are not getting it. But we as Christians who love and study the word of God, we need to get it. So I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. I've got a few scriptures in Jeremiah that we need to look at. I am going to try to do them quickly, but these are just reviews. We studied the book of Jeremiah a few years ago, but nonetheless, they should be a review to us. This is stating what the new covenant is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Notice he doesn't say the church, he doesn't say, you know, you know the, uh, the lost uh, Gentiles or anything like that. He is very specific that he's making a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What does that make up? the whole of the nation of Israel. The two houses that were split after Solomon and Solomon's sons or Solomon's son. And then he says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Right now, where's the law? It's on tablets. The law was written on tablets of stone and then written on sheepskin, as it were. But was it in their hearts? I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That day is coming. The good thing for us who believe in Jesus Christ is that day that days come already for us. He has forgiven our sin. He's forgiven our iniquity. He remembers our sin no more. As far as east is from the west. Turn to Jeremiah 32, next page. Look at verses 38 through 40. And they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way who's that? Jesus! Remember when Jesus said I am the way I am the only way, I'm the one way (laughs) notice how many people nowadays I don't know maybe it's because they're a little inebriated or something they like to go down the wrong way on the one-way street Oh, I mean, hey, there's only one way you're going the wrong way if you're going the other direction. It's only one way. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. That word fear is so important here. That means that they are reverent and respectful and full of awe and full of worship for God. Which means that when we are those things, we are ready and willing to obey his law. Which they haven't yet done completely. That they may fear me forever for the good of them and the, of, the child, of their children after them. And I will make, notice, I will make an everlasting covenant. Now stop, I know I do this all the time, but if I, if I say everlasting, how long is everlasting? Everlasting. Lasting for? Ever. never ending I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them stop and ask yourself this question where do people get off saying that God is done with Israel how can they say that because when they say that they're saying that God is a liar The last time I checked, calling God a liar isn't a good thing. It's a destructive thing. If He makes an everlasting covenant, you can't change that. It's God's covenant, not man's covenant. And it's God's promise that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Things are going to change. Go to the next page, Jeremiah 33, verses 7 through 9. The only thing that makes these long is, is that the, the verses are really long. You've got to squeeze them into those <laughs> Slides. Verse 7, and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return. Now, of course, we know that they were both in captivity. The northern kingdom of Israel was in captivity to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was in captivity to the Babylonians. Of course, they all came out. But notice, I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. But then he says this, listen. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth. That's speaking of a different time. That's speaking of a, of a time to come. When you see the phrase, all the nations of the earth which shall hear all the good that I do unto them. Because today, even with God doing good to them by putting them back in the land and making them a fruitful land because he said he would, that doesn't make the nations love them. They just hate them all the more right now. So it says, and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. Jump down to verse 13. You can read everything in between later. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the vale, or the valley, and in the cities of the south, and in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, shall the flocks pass again under the hand of him that telleth them, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days, and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. Who is the branch of righteousness? Jesus. And he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. This is what he will do for a thousand years during the thousand year reign of Christ from Jerusalem on the earth. In those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Now, (coughs) excuse me, remember that uh, back in Ezekiel 36, there was also mention of this new covenant. So, in review, go to Ezekiel 36 and look at verses. 25 to 28, and by the way, if you were here last week, this is what I ended last week with. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh. Now, what's significant about that? A stony heart is a dead heart because it's made out of stone. A stony heart also signifies the hardness of the heart. But it also signifies what God wrote his law upon with his finger when he gave the commandments to Moses. Two tablets of stone. He says, "And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh." Why a heart of flesh? Because a heart of flesh is alive. It is alive. No longer are we dead. He's saying you're alive now. Your heart beats. I cause it to beat. And I will cause it to have my law in you. And a new spirit in you. And so he says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. Now, again, you look at scriptural consistency and you realize he's speaking of a time that is yet to come. And then he says, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. Well, they're dwelling in the land. Now, the new heart, new spirit isn't there yet. It's coming. And the ones who believe in Yeshua, the ones who believe in Jesus, they already have it. But it's coming to Israel and to Judah as a whole. He says, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So one last thing in this passage here. There is a promise that neither the royal line of David nor the Levitical priesthood would be abolished. Although in history they would cease for a short time. And I'm talking really about... uh, if you'll go back to, uh, well, I'll, I'll get there in just a second here. Yeah, let me get, I'll, get, I'll, I'll get there. There's a promise that neither the royal line of David nor the Levitical priesthood would be abolished. Although in history they would cease for a short time. So this certainly affects the prophecies of Ezekiel excuse me, especially pertaining to the temple worship and sacrifices. And I'm talking about Jeremiah 33. So if you're still there in Jeremiah 33, well, I I, I know I took you to Ezekiel 36. But if you go back to Jeremiah 33 and then read on in verse 17, that's, yeah, I I interjected the uh, passage from Ezekiel. Got you off. Wanted to keep you in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah 33. So in Jeremiah 33, the next verse, verse 17. This is the passage I was talking about here. of of this promise for thus saith the Lord David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel now in modern English that doesn't make sense that David would never want a man on the you know uh, to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel well he wouldn't want any man to sit on the throne of Israel but in, in old English what that means is let me read it to you David shall never lack a man David shall never fail to have a man sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Which means there will always be someone from the line of David that will be sitting on the the throne of the house of Israel. And then notice verse 18, the same thing. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings. Which means neither shall the priests, the Levites, uh, lack or fail to have a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. What have we been talking about over the last few weeks? That there are going to be sacrifices during the millennial kingdom. So think about it. You've got to have priests to do that. Verse 20, it says, Thus saith the Lord, if you can break... Oh, get this. you got to get this. If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night... In other words, my covenant that I have brought about with the day and the night so that there's always a day and there's always a night if you can break that covenant and that there should not be day and night in their season then may also my covenant be broken with david my servant if you can break the the, you know the covenant of, of night and day if you if you can break that up to where there's no more night and day yourselves then my covenant is going to be broken with david that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne. And with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. And then he says, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites that minister unto me. So we know what kind of priesthood then, that there will be, during the millennial kingdom and the fact that someone from the line of David will be on the throne during that kingdom and of course we know it it can only be one person just Jesus that's it so it's hard to believe then, with all of this that we've looked at already and there's countless other passages but it's hard to believe that people who hold to the replacement theology or the Or or the replacement theological position that says that the church has now replaced Israel uh, for the blessings of God. Israel no longer receives the blessings of God because they were disobedient and God no longer pays attention to them. I mean, again, it's hard to believe that these people would overlook what is clearly seen in Scripture as literal and inspired to show and to give evidence of the Lord's foreknowledge and providence for his people Israel and their future. And maybe it's a cliche, but let me just say that the Lord truly is not done with Israel. The Lord is not done with Israel, and we know that because they're still around. It is not a happenstance. It is not an accident that they're still around. It just, wow, it's just like coincidence no coincidences with God he knew exactly what he was going to do with Israel and what we as the church need to do is understand that because we play a role in it all too we play a role because we're called to obey what God says in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Our role is to bless the people of Israel. Our role is to love them. And every time we go to Israel, we, uh, that's what we're doing. We go there to bless them, to bless the people, to love them, support them. So the Lord's not done with Israel no matter what the world says and whatever way or form they say it. God's not done with them. And, and, and no rogue nation or terrorist organization or even the combined organizations together could touch the apple of God's eye. Well, they might poke it a few times but they're not going to destroy it they can God said these are my people you will be my people I will be your God that's a promise that's not a hope it's a promise so this brings us back to the statement by the man who stood with Ezekiel let's go back to verse 7 okay okay <clears throat> verse 7 and I I made reference to this already but it says and he said unto me son of man the place of my throne the place of my of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever in my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile neither they nor their kings by their whoredom nor by the, the carcasses of their kings in their high places so consider if you will the beginning of that phrase he said unto me, Son of man, behold the place of my throne. That's, that's an implied here. Behold the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my holy name. So the place and the name shall the house of Israel no more defile, because when they defile the place, they were defiling the name of God. They were defiling the authority of God. They were defiling everything that God represented. Neither they nor their kings by their whoredom. And that's a tremendously strong word because it literally means idolatrous infidelity. They were unfaithful to the God that was to be their husband and he says as I was a husband unto them but they were unfaithful by taking the idols that God looks at us as whores Which, in fact, the idolatry was an abomination unto God. Then he calls the kings carcasses, (laughs) nor by the carcasses of their kings in their high places. It's like these guys may be kings, but they're dead to me. They're They're just like dead bodies. First consider the place of Messiah's throne. Where where, where should our thoughts be, folks? Think about this question for just a moment because we have to think about it as the followers of Christ, as the people of God, as the children of God. Where should our thoughts be when it comes to our Messiah, to our Savior? Our thoughts should always be to where he is. Today we know that he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, the Father. But he's also among us through the spirit that he poured out upon us. And if our hearts are thrones, then he should be sitting on the throne of our hearts. If we are houses that... um, our temples of the Holy Spirit. These are things we ought to pay attention to. Personal holiness, personal righteousness, personal godliness. Our thoughts should be on where the Messiah is always. Isaiah 2 verses 1 through 3 says the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And then it says in verse 3 and many people shall go and say come ye. And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, every time we go to Israel and, and enter into the city of Jerusalem, it's, it's, a, it's a captivating moment. And you know we, we see the temple mount as we drive in. And of course, you know, you see the... <laughs> Dome of the Rock, you see the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and you're like, oh, you know, it's pretty, but, you know, that's not this Jerusalem. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains. I mean, as we said, the topography is going to change completely. Don't expect to see two Muslim sites. They won't be there. They won't even be there for museums. They'd be gone. Jeremiah 3, verse 17 says, At that time they shall call Jerusalem, notice, the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord. Remember, remember, you've defiled my house, you've defiled my name. At that time, the Lord, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk anymore after the imagination of their evil heart. Wow. That's coming. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 20. Zechariah 14. Today's a lot of of chasing after Bible verses here. But they're necessary for us to establish that foundation for what we know is yet to come. Notice that it begins in verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem well, that's an interesting thing it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king the lord of hosts and to keep the feast of tabernacles <laughs> this is what's going to happen during the millennium for a thousand years those nations that are still there that came against Jerusalem would you say they're against Jerusalem anymore I don't think so Because now they're doing what? They're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, they have no rain. There shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. this shall be the punishment of egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feasts or the feast of tabernacles in that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the lord it will be written upon the reins of these horses and the pots in the lord's house shall be like the bowls after the altar lastly malachi 3 verses 1 through 4 says behold i will send my messenger And he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. So there's one messenger, speaking of John the Baptist as it were, who prepares the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. So there's this messenger who's the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. The delight is in The Messiah. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, the Levites, and purge them as gold and silver, cleanse them. That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Again, that ties into what we've been studying in Ezekiel about the priesthood and the sacrifices. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. So I had mentioned last time that the second purpose of the temple would be to honor God's holy name and to guarantee a righteous society through all of Israel. No longer would they profane his name by false worship or wicked behavior. But notice, if you go back to Ezekiel 43, verses 8 through 10, notice what it says here. In their setting of their threshold by my thresholds and their post by my post. Remember that the, you know, uh, the temple now, the temple proper, has those attachments of the, uh, of the priests' houses and stuff or apartments. they're setting of their threshold by my thresholds, and their post by my post, and the wall between me and them, they have even defiled my holy name by, by their abominations. That's going all the way back to a previous time, disgraces and atrocities that they've committed. We talked about that when Ezekiel was taken back to Jerusalem to see what the, what the priests were doing during the, you know, inside where people weren't seeing. You know, I mean, then deep down into the, into the belly of of, of the temple. Wherefore I've consumed them in mine anger. Now let them put away their whoredom and the carcasses of their kings. Far from me. And I will dwell in the midst of them forever. Thou son of man, show the house to the house of Israel. So he's telling Ezekiel, show them these things. Show them the house of the millennial kingdom that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. Wow. Let them measure the pattern. Can I ask you a question? Do any of us in our flesh measure up to Jesus in righteousness? And yet, doesn't the Lord say, You shall be holy because I'm holy. We put a measure upon a lot of people. And some people are very quick to, to judge others by the measure that they can't even keep. You know, go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 7 where it talks about uh, you know, judge. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's where he talks about that measure. You know, don't judge with a with a measure that you can't even keep, uh, that you can't even measure up to yourself. A lot of people still do that, even in the church today. So he says, let them measure the pattern. We can't measure up to these things. That's where we have to surrender to to God. We have to surrender to the Lord. Surrender to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And by the way, remember what the pattern was? We talked about it. The pattern of the temple mount, or the temple proper, was the cross. The way it was built, and the way it will be built. The third purpose for the new temple was to be the hope of God's presence realized on earth, and to stir that present generation not to mention our own generation to stir us the fourth purpose would be to remind and to teach his people that God is holy and people are sinful hence the reminder through the sacrifices of the high price for forgiveness of sin and so the last two verses that we're going to look at verses 11 and 12 and if they be ashamed of all that they've done show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof and the goings out thereof, and the comings in thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof, and write it in their sight. Show them what is going to happen in this temple. Even in the millennial kingdom. And write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and do them. This is the law of the house. This is the law of the house. Upon the top of the mountain, the whole limit thereof, round about shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. Everything around that temple, that new temple mount, everything around it cannot be unclean. It has to be holy. It has to be holy. So if in the spirit of true repentance, they acknowledge their past transgressions, and purpose in their hearts never more to offend God than Ezekiel was to teach them everything that concerns God's pattern of worship and how the people would benefit from worship God's way. Verse 12 makes it clear that there is one law that will permeate the temple's hallowed grounds and that flows out, of the whole, out to the whole world. It is the law of holiness. It is the law of holiness. That is the law of the house. The law of holiness. The ground upon which it stands and the surrounding area will become most holy. This will be the law that will govern the whole world. The purity and the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And we have to wonder There's a picture given to us in the book of Revelation. I want to close with this. But there's a picture given to us of Jesus in preparation for the last battle when Satan will be put in his place. The Antichrist and the false prophet, and the beast will all be taken care of. The picture is this, it's Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, even as John had seen in chapter 1. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. Now stop there and think for just a moment how some people would say, I wonder what that name is. Well, why? Why do you wonder? He had a name written, that no man knew. You're a man, so you don't know, so why worry about it? But Jesus knows. That's all that matters. And his, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. If you ever had a desire to ride a horse but didn't, want to go through the hassle of falling off, you get your chance, and you won't fall off. And you'll look really good at it, because you'll be in white. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress, the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus. This is not Jesus, meek and mild. This is not Jesus in a manger. This is Jesus. Fulfilling his whole purpose as not only the Son of God, but as God the Son, not only the creator of the heavens and the earth, but the one who will eventually and finally and forever rule all things. First on earth, and then in a new heaven and new earth, in a new Jerusalem where righteousness will dwell.